Did you know today marks a new year in our liturgical calendar? Our church year begins with the season of Advent. I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition, and so I was only passingly aware of Advent as a child. At church, we lit candles to mark the weeks. At home, my mom made a felt Advent calendar that we used to count down the days until Christmas. My mom is probably taking it out today. It's been used for probably more than 40 years at this point. As I've moved through life, Advent has been a gift, a consolation, and a provocation to me. I want to share some of what I've learned about the season and to welcome you into it. In high school or college, I became aware that Advent was a season for marveling at the incarnation. And it really is marvelous. God so loved people and was so grieved by our misery, sometimes of our own making, that God fully entered into our experience in the person of Jesus. It's challenging to wrap your mind around. God, who is eternal and endlessly powerful and glorious, became flesh, bearing all the limitations and sorrows that we do. And Jesus didn't come as a great king, but as an infant to a not yet married couple in occupied territory. One of my favorite carols says it beautifully. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. The language of exchange is wonderful here. Despite deserving the lavish trappings of royalty like thrones and sapphire paved courts, Jesus is born in a manger in a stable. In the words of the famous hymn in Philippians, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. I also came to see that Advent was a time to take human darkness and suffering seriously. In my late adolescence, I, as I was learning about Advent, I was really struggling to make sense of a queer identity and wrestling deeply with self-hatred and internalized homophobia. And I was doing it alone because I didn't feel safe sharing that part of my life with my family or friends and definitely not with anyone at church. Though I was aching, I felt lots of pressure to present myself as happy and light, both because I was terrified of intrusive questions, probing why I was sad, but also because Christians are supposed to be happy, right? Advent reminded me that God comes to us in our darkness and lostness. God doesn't just see our sorrow in Jesus, God fully enters into it. Advent provided a container for my longing and grief. Earlier we sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We sang the traditional words by Charles Wesley, but there are two other verses that were written in the 1990s by a guy named Mark Hunt. One of them has been especially important to me. It says, Come to earth 
to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. The first time I sang it, I thought, this has to be a mistake. Can we really ask the God of the universe to come to earth for something as small and as, uh, as small as our private sadnesses? But God has already done that in Jesus, not just observed our grief from a distance, but come to taste it. If this is a season of darkness, despair, confusion, or grief for you, I wanna invite you to make these words your own this Advent. In recent years, I've come to understand another dimension of Advent that has surprised me. Historically, in addition to a focus on Jesus's incarnation, his first coming, the church has used the season of Advent to look forward to Jesus's second coming. So if you look at the lectionary readings, they're often apocalyptic in tone and contents. The Old Testament readings turn to the prophets and the gospel readings tell of John the Baptist or offer challenging words of Jesus about when he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We're gonna say that a little later together as we say the Nicene Creed. This isn't a subject that we talk about very much and it can make us nervous. It can make me nervous. <laughs> but I hope to reassure us that the promise of Jesus's return is a hopeful thing, especially for those of us who've known sorrow. Let's consider the New Testament reading for today. Jesus says that his second coming will be preceded by signs in the natural world. People will be confused and distressed, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice what Jesus says next. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your, your redemption is drawing near. He says something very similar in the next paragraph when he says, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus's return will be good news because it will bring about our redemption. In fact, it is Jesus's judgment that will result in our redemption. Now, to be clear, this passage does not mention Jesus as judge, just as redeemer. However, essential to Jesus's work of redemption is his returning to judge the living and the dead. And since this is often poorly understood, I think we should go there. How can we understand Jesus's judgment as something that might bring about our redemption? Fleming Rutledge is a priest, theologian, and writer who's taught me a lot about Advent. And she makes a helpful distinction between judgment and condemnation in her Advent book. She reminds us that Jesus suffered God's once and for all condemnation of evil when he was put to death on the cross. God made Jesus to be sin so that we are made to be the righteousness of God. 
She also reminds us of the words of the gospel writer John, who wrote, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through him. So judgment is not condemnation. So how else can we understand it? Exercising judgment is discerning what is true and setting things right. Jesus' righteous judgment will bring about the redemption of the world because all that is true will be revealed and all that is broken, distorted, and harmed will be made new. You know, I think I had an experience of sitting under Jesus's judgment this past spring. It's nowhere near as spectacular as Jesus' second coming, but I'll share this example in faith that it might make the goodness of his judgment more concrete. During Lent, God revealed a pattern of me hiding myself, my true thoughts, my feelings, my mistakes, my identity as a gay man. As I was praying one day, it came to me like this. You have shown a thousand faces to a thousand people. Most of the time, I don't seek to deceive others, but I've also failed to speak many times when I should have. This habit of hiding was born of survival and an unwillingness to entrust myself to God. This judgment helped me to see myself rightly. You might expect that Jesus's judgment caused me shame. It really hasn't. I felt God's love for revealing this to me. I've also felt some trepidation as God has led me to some places I would rather not go. <laughs> like finally telling my parents about my relationship with Ryan after nearly six years of withholding that from them. This judgment is also, with God's help, starting to set some things right so that I would be a person of integrity. The list of things that are disordered within myself and in our world is vast. There are so many things that need to be set right. Flying Rutledge says it powerfully in one of her Advent sermons when she writes that the face of God is turned against everything that reduces us, that imprisons us, that distorts us, that annihilates us. It is our redeemed self that he loves and promises to make whole in us, but not without judgment upon all that is crippling and destructive. Ultimately, it's Christ's love for us that motivates that judgment. The promise that we press into during Advent is that when Jesus returns, the heavens and the earth will be resurrected and a final and forever peace will be accomplished. This fall, a group of us gathered to pray Compline on Thursday nights. In preparation to facilitate those evenings, I read Prayers in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren, along with Christine and Leisha and Aaron. This book is an extended meditation on one of the prayers of Compline, which says, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. 
Warren argues that to have a fully formed faith, we need a balance of watching, weeping, and working. She says we have to learn to weep, not just during great tragedies, but much more regularly. Our world is both cruel and good. And it's so easy to respond with outrage or numbness, but grieving can lead us to wisdom, comfort, joy, and ultimately to God's love. Next, she invites us to watch. Watching is rather like in our Luke passage when Jesus says, be on guard, be alert, stand up and raise your heads. It means to remain on the lookout for grace, to stay awake to God and God's work in the world. And finally, we respond, rooted in the hope of God's redemption by getting to work and participating in what God is already doing. A balance of weeping, watching, and working will steer us away from despair, apathy, and frenzy, and into joy, hope, and rest. I share all this because I think watching, weeping, and working provide some ways to inhabit Advent. Is there something that you need to grieve? Maybe it's local and personal. Maybe it's global and structural. How might you make space in the rush of December to weep? How might you keep watch during Advent to renew your hope in how God is active in the world? Maybe you might learn more about the doctrine of the Incarnation. Maybe you might set aside time to sing Advent carols and songs. Or maybe you might simply set aside time to sit in silence before God. Do you sense an invitation from God to respond with action? I've learned to be wary of this for myself <laughs> because it's tempting for me to rush into action. We can try to accomplish good for ourselves or someone else without first understanding the need or the situation. Or we forget that God is the agent of redemption and we're just participants that God has invited in. Nonetheless, maybe there's some way that God is calling you forward, uh, calling you forward to act this Advent. We live in the time between. Jesus has come, endured death, and inaugurated the unmaking of all sin, brokenness, and evil by his resurrection. We experience some of the first fruits of that resurrection life, and we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we also continue to experience death and sorrow while we wait for Jesus' return. Let me conclude with one last thought from Fleming Rutledge. To be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. May God give us the grace to do just that. Amen.